is enough that Jesus died. Amen? It is enough. And we're going to talk more about that this morning in Galatians chapter 2. So I invite you to join me there if you have a copy of God's Word. And today we're going to examine Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11 and down to the close of the chapter, which is verse 21. And the title of my message this morning is just simply justified. And hopefully I'll be able to explain what that means during the course of my message. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to follow along with me as I read. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And all God's people said, Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that I have to stand here behind this sacred desk and to preach your word, to teach your people. Father, I I pray for myself in this moment. I pray, first of all, that I would not be a man who who stands here in trust in any perceived ability of my own, but that I would trust completely in your power and in your ability to work through even someone such as myself, a a fallen and a broken sinner. And so, Lord, I I pray and and I would invite you to come and, and work through me. Pray that you would allow me to preach in the power of your spirit here today, that I would rightly divide your word, that I would also encourage and strengthen your people, the church, here this morning. And Lord, I pray that we would all have eyes to see the truth of this text, that Jesus died for me, and that is 
That is enough. That is enough. I pray all of these things in his wonderful and precious name. Amen. Verse 16, church. I want to draw your attention this morning at the outset at verse 16. Because in this verse, the Apostle Paul introduces to us for the first time in the book of Galatians what I believe to be one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. It is the doctrine that is known as justification by faith. So look with me, if you will, in verse 16. And there the Bible says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. That word justified is used three times in that one verse, and then it appears again in the following verse, I do believe. So four times that word is used here, and then there's another time later in the text where uh, the same root word is used. And whenever we see a word that is repeated so often in a text of Scripture, that's a sign to us. If, we're, if you want to learn how to study your Bible a, a little better, uh, look for repetition. And so here's a word that is repeated over and over again in this text. It is the word justified. And the, the Greek word that is translated as justified in our English Bibles, it comes from the law court. It's a judicial term, a forensic term, if you will. And it carries the idea of being found not guilty or being acquitted in a court of law. And so now with that understanding of this word, I want to go back and read verse 16 again. But here's something I want to do. I want to insert the word acquitted for the word justified. And I want us to read it that way and see if maybe uh, that gives us a, a little fuller meaning and understanding of what's being communicated here. So, verse 16 again, Yet we know that a person is not acquitted by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be acquitted by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be acquitted. Now that kind of changes our understanding of what's being communicated here, doesn't it? Or at least it adds a little something to it. Beloved, I want you to understand the use of this word by Paul and the other New Testament writers is really important and foundational in our understanding of who we are as human beings, but also in understanding and appreciating what Jesus Christ accomplished for us specifically in his death on the cross. This word combined with other teachings in scripture confirms for us the idea, the biblical idea that God is a judge and that we have all been charged with breaking his law. And when I say his law, I mean his moral law, which is encapsulated or summarized in the Ten Commandments. And so this word combined with other passages of scripture confirms this idea that God is a judge. And not only is he a judge, he's also like a prosecuting attorney because he brings charges against us. He has indicted every single one of us. He says, you have broken my law. But not only does he charge us with breaking his law, the truth is, in my mind, and I think the Bible confirms this, and I'm going to try to uh, prove it to you in just a second, 
Not only are we charged with breaking his law, the truth is we are all guilty of breaking his law. As Paul says in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we begin with some bad news this morning. And the bad news is God is a judge. And he indicts every single one of us. He charges us with breaking his law. And we stand in judgment before him. And his wrath rightly does belong over us for all eternity because we have broken his law. That is bad, bad news. But there's a reason why, as I said before, and you will hear me say this many times going forward, There's a reason why the New Testament writers chose that word that's translated as gospel to refer to the good news of Jesus Christ because that's what the word means. And there's good news. We start out with bad news. We're condemned. We're guilty. We've broken God's law. We deserve to be separated for all eternity. But the Bible assures us that when we are willing to confess and admit our guilt before God and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, believing that Jesus died on the cross in my place and in your place as a sacrifice for sin and believe in his resurrection from the grave. You know what God does? He takes that gavel of his as the judge and he says, you are not guilty. You are acquitted of the charges against you. Even though you are, I do believe, and myself included, that we all are really, truly guilty. We've all broken God's law. So we can be acquitted. We can be found not guilty. This is the doctrine of justification by faith. Martin Luther, you've heard of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was one of the the reformers 500 years ago. Martin Luther said this in regards to this doctrine of justification by faith. He said the doctrine of justification by faith is the doctrine by which the church will either stand or fall. Now think about the weight of that statement for just a minute. Think about what he's really saying there. He is saying that when a church or if a church ever unhitches itself from this doctrine, that that church will eventually fall. And I believe that's an accurate statement. I believe it is absolutely true. And so as long as I am your pastor, we are going to stand on this doctrine of justification by faith. Because the truth is, lots of churches today are jettisoning this all-important doctrine. They're hitching themselves or unhitching themselves from this doctrine. You say, well, how is that? How are churches doing that, Walter? Well, the primary way by which churches are doing this today, and not just churches but denominations, is it begins with a denial of human culpability before God. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm, not really, I'm not really a sinner, you know? I've not really done anything against God, God's love. And yes, God is love, for sure. But, you know, it's the mindset that says, well, well God, is, God is love. It's all kumbaya. And God certainly isn't going to judge me for anything, perhaps, that I have done wrong. They deny human culpability before God. And once you deny human culpability, your guilt before God, then, of course, there's no reason for you to ever be justified to be declared innocent or not guilty of the charges against you. And church after church and denomination after denomination, they're doing this. They're unhitching themselves from this all-important doctrine. So we don't want to do that as a church. Amen? So to help in this endeavor... Let me submit to you this idea. 
I want you to adopt an O.J. Simpson theology. The preacher, what are you talking about? O.J. Simpson theology. How many of you know of O.J., right? Yeah, we all know, most of us are old enough to know about O.J. O.J., once upon a time, was a fantastic football player. And then he had a little career in Hollywood. But then after all of that was done, O.J. Simpson was charged with a crime. And he was specifically charged with the crime of killing his ex-wife and her boyfriend. Now, this was the trial of the century way back in sometime in the mid-1990s. And just for the sake of argument, all right, let's just assume for a moment that O.J. really is guilty of killing his wife, his ex-wife, and her boyfriend. I don't know, okay? And you don't know either. I have my opinion on the matter, okay? But my opinion doesn't really matter. Probably only O.J. and God really know the truth at this point in time. We don't really know. But just for the sake of argument, okay, let's assume for a minute that O.J. really did kill his wife, his ex-wife, and her boyfriend. He was charged with these crimes. He stood trial for these crimes. But ultimately, he was acquitted of these charges. He says, the judge says, you are not guilty, and he was free to go. That is a perfect illustration of this doctrine of justification by faith. And we all need to adopt an O.J. Simpson theology. You say, well, wait just a second, Walter. I've never killed anybody in my life. How dare you compare me to O.J. Simpson? I've not killed anybody. Oh, is that the case? What does Jesus say? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, of course, is talking about the Ten Commandments. And he says in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Understand what Jesus says right there. He says, hey, if you've ever harbored anger in your heart, if you've ever been angry at another human being, you have violated, you have broken the sixth commandment. He raises the bar so very high that no one can possibly get over this bar because who among us has never been angry at another human being? He says it's the very same thing as the physical act of murder. Who among us has never been angry at someone else? By the way, he does the very same thing with the next commandment, the seventh commandment, in the same breath. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And Jesus comes along and says, oh, and oh, by the way, men, if you've ever had a lustful thought at another woman who's not your wife, that's the same as committing the physical act of adultery. And that would be true for any woman who would have a a, a lustful thought about a man who's not her husband. He raises the bar so very high that we are all condemned. We are all breakers of God's law. What about the Eighth Commandment? What is the Eighth Commandment? Thou shalt not steal. Who among us has never stolen anything? I can remember when I was a little boy, we went to the 7-Eleven in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. We have 7-Elevens around here? Yes, okay, good. I went to the 7-Eleven in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and I can remember I snuck down the candy aisle and I took a couple of pieces of gum and I put them in my pocket and I walked right on out the store. Who here has never stolen a stick of gum like that when you were a little kid? Okay, maybe you didn't do that. 
Maybe you stole some money, maybe some coins or some quarters or some dollar bills, maybe out of your, your mother's wallet or her purse, your, your father's wallet, or, or maybe your brother or your sister's piggy bank in the room. Right? Oh, they won't miss this. It's not really stealing. It's okay. Or maybe you plagiarized a paragraph or a sentence or two in an essay or a term paper, a research paper when you were in college. That's theft. Who's never done something like that? Or you use copyrighted material without the proper permission. That's theft. And here's my personal favorite. Whenever you take your own personal candy and food into the movie theater, you're stealing And I just want you to know I'm guilty of that. I've done that. But it it really is theft. I mean, they make it pretty clear. You don't bring outside food or drink in here. And when you do that, you're taking money from them. And I know they charge exorbitant prices. I get it. Who wants to pay $20 for a thing of popcorn and a Coke? I I get it, okay? But it's pretty clear. You're stealing money from them because that's how they make their money. As I understand it, they don't really make money off the movie ticket itself. That's where they make their money. And so when you do that, you're you're stealing from them. And then what about the 10th commandment? Thou shalt not covet. We're all Americans. (laughs) I mean, come on. We're all wanting to keep up with the Joneses, aren't we? From time to time. My point is, church, we've all broken God's law. At some point in time, we have. I believe that's a true statement. And I don't think you can disagree with that and maintain a straight face. I, I really don't. So we've all broken God's law, but thankfully we can be acquitted. We can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is getting at here in Galatians 2, 11 through 21. So let's just dive right in. Enough about me and my own sinfulness to you this morning. Uh, Let's get into this text and let's see, you know, what is the occasion that brings about Paul's teaching here on this all-important doctrine of justification by faith. So we begin in verse 11, and Paul says, But when Cephas, and again, that's Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. If you've been following along with us in our study of Galatians, you know that Paul has taken two trips up to Jerusalem. He has seen Peter both times and also James, the Lord's brother. But now, sometime after his second visit to Jerusalem, He is in the church of Antioch, and Peter comes down to Antioch as well. Just for your own edification, the church in Antioch is a really important church in the first century. It was a missions-minded church. This is the church that supported Paul on his very first missionary journeys. And oh, by the way, this is also the church where Jesus' followers were first called Christians. And that's important because here in this church in Antioch, people are beginning to see, okay, this is not just some sect of Judaism. These people are separated from Judaism. This movement where these people are following this guy named Jesus who they think is the Messiah, they're making a clean break from Judaism in all of its traditions, and absolutely they are. So the church in Antioch is really, really important. But here for our understanding today, notice how Paul says that he opposed Peter to his face. You know what this means? This means he had a problem with Peter, and he went directly to the source. He didn't gossip about him. 
He didn't pick up the phone and, and call his friends or his own friends and say, Hey, did you see what Peter did? Y'all don't ever do any of that, right? He didn't gossip about him. He didn't pick up the phone and talk about him. He didn't start blogging about it, talking about it or blabbering it all over Facebook. Did you see what you know, what's his face did? Did you see that? He didn't do any of that. He had a problem with Peter. Peter did something that was deserving of a rebuke. And, and Paul goes directly to the source. He tells him to his face. And that's very biblical, church. Now, the question is, what is it that Peter has done to deserve this rebuke? Well, we begin to find out in verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And so Paul describes a situation where Peter, an ethnic Jew, someone who has been raised according to the traditions of Judaism and raised to observe the law, that Peter is eating with the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish Christians in the church of Antioch. And this fact is really important because this tells us that they're probably eating unclean foods. There's this whole section of the Old Testament law where, where you know, the, the Bible talks about these unclean foods, foods that, that the Jews could not eat. So let me just name a couple of them for you. Pork, a violation of the law. No pulled pork sandwiches. Shrimp, which where I'm from is a big deal. Oysters, again, where I'm from, a big deal. Catfish, just to name a few. These are foods that are considered unclean according to the Old Testament law. And so Paul describes a situation here where Peter is at the table with these Gentiles and they're eating. And they're probably eating foods similar to that which I just described. But then when these men from Jerusalem show up, he leaves the Gentile table and he goes over to the Jewish table, the kosher table. Now who are these men who have shown up? They, Paul says that they're, they're from the circumcision party. Well, what in the world does that mean? mean? We don't know exactly. It could be a reference to the Judaizers, our old friends, the Judaizers. They're the false teachers that have really caused Paul to write this letter to the Galatians because the Judaizers have come into these churches of Galatia and they're telling these Gentile Christians, hey, if you want to be a true Christian, quote unquote, you got to become a Jew and you got to submit to the Old Testament law. So it could be a reference to them or it could just be Jewish Christians who insist that, hey, if you're a Jew, an ethnic Jew like Peter, you can follow Jesus, that's fine, but you need to continue following the law because you're a Jew. It could be one of the two. We don't really know. And ultimately, it's not very important. But whatever the case may be, when they arrive, it causes Peter to break table fellowship with these Gentile Christians. And this is what gets Paul so upset. Look at what he says in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews, and these are Jewish Christians, acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now the Greek word for hypocrisy, I find it really interesting. It comes from the, the world of drama and, and plays. 
And so in, in that time, in, in Greek theater specifically, if you were an actor in a play, you wouldn't just go and put on a costume, you, you would actually put a mask on because you're, you're pretending to be someone else. And, and that's exactly what this word means. It, it means to, to play, to act or to play or pretend to be someone else, but with a mask on your face. And Paul says that's exactly what Peter is doing here. One moment, he's at the Gentile table. Now let's imagine for a second that this is First Baptist Church of Antioch, and they're good Baptists, so what they're doing is they're having a, a potluck after church one day. And somebody among these Gentile Christians thinks it's a great idea to bring the very best of Kansas City-style pork barbecue, pulled pork sandwiches, to this potluck. And so that's what they're doing. They're having a fantastic time. Somebody's brought it from the smokehouse. Somebody's brought it from Casey Joe's. Somebody's brought it from Arthur Bryant's. Okay, it's just in whatever your favorite barbecue joint is here in Kansas City. And I can confirm for you, there's great pork barbecue here in Kansas City. And so here they are. They're having these pulled pork sandwiches. Let's imagine for a second that maybe there's some fried catfish on the menu as well. If you go to North Carolina, where I'm from, and you go to a genuine Eastern North Carolina barbecue joint, there's not usually typically a beef option. It's pork and something else, maybe fried chicken or fried catfish. So let's imagine for a moment that here they are, and they're enjoying these, Peter's enjoying this pulled pork sandwich and this fried catfish. He's got a little bit of pulled pork on this side. It's a little bit of red sauce dripping down off of it. He's having a great old time. He's got a little catfish hanging off of this side along with some tartar sauce. He's just having a grand old time eating these foods that are unclean. And then these Jews from the circumcision party show up he says, oh, wait a minute, let me pretend as if I had never been here before. And he goes over to the kosher table with his fellow Jews, and he's eating a New York-style kosher hot dog. Did you see what the mayor of New York said this week? Well, you should go in, in relation to Kansas City. You should go and see that. Pulled pork, Kansas City-style or a kosher hot dog from New York City. I'm going to choose this one right over here. Can I get a witness? There's no comparison. This is much better. But Peter, when these guys show up, he's like, oh no, I can't be seen eating these unclean foods. Let me go over to the kosher table. And Paul says, Peter, man, which is it? One day you're living like a Gentile. The next day, you're living like a Jew. Take the mask off, man. Will the real Peter please come forward? You are a hypocrite, he says. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, quote, if you, Peter, Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let me help try to better explain what he's saying here. My mother had a saying that she would say all the time. She said, you know what? Your actions speak louder than your words. Your mother used to say something like that. You know what that means. And there is truth in that statement. And that's exactly what's going on here. When Peter switches to the kosher table, he is announcing by his actions that true Christians will submit to the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament law, and therefore they will submit to the law 
itself. That's what he's communicating via his actions. Whether he really believes that or not, it's not important. That's what his actions are communicating to everyone else. And Paul says this is out of step with the gospel. Last week it was they were trying to force a Gentile Christian to submit to the rite of circumcision in accordance with the Old Testament law. Paul says that's out of step with the gospel. Now he says this is also out of step with the gospel. And here's what makes this so much worse, church. Peter knows better. In in Acts chapter 10, I would encourage you to go home and read this today. In Acts chapter 10, Peter's up on the roof of a house, I believe. He's sitting there praying, and then all of a sudden, he gets this vision. And this sheet from heaven comes down, and on this sheet, he sees all of these animals that are considered unclean according to the Old Testament law. And he has this vision of these unclean animals. And then God says to Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, I'll never do that. But then, of course, he ends up doing that. He goes to this Gentile's house who comes to faith in Christ, and they end up having and sharing a meal together. Peter knows better than this. And oh, by the way, Mark chapter 7, verse 19, Peter was there, I have no doubt, when Jesus, quote, declared all foods clean. And by the way, church, Aren't you thankful that Jesus declared all foods clean? Okay, can we just praise God for pulled pork barbecue sandwiches for just a moment? It may not make my doctor happy, okay? But it sure does make life more enjoyable sometimes. I get it, all right? So let's give thanks that Jesus declared all foods clean. Peter has no excuse for this at all. He knows better. And this is why Paul rebukes him in front, of, in front of the entire church of Antioch. Now, something very important. His rebuke to Peter begins here in the middle of verse 14. There's quotation marks there. And I believe the rest of this section down to verse 21 is continuing his personal address to Peter. Right? So, the, so the rest are Paul's words, first of all, directly to Peter in this situation. So just keep that in mind. He says in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We being Peter and Paul. Now understand church, Paul is not denying that they were sinners. He's not denying that at all. Paul is the one who wrote, uh, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. His point is that they were not sinners in the same way as Gentiles because Gentiles did not live under the law. That's what he's saying. Verse 16, yet we, Paul and Peter... Know that a person is not justified, acquitted, by works of the law. Come on, man, Paul says. You and I both know that we stand guilty before God. And no amount of observing the law can can acquit us, can find us not guilty. A person cannot be declared not guilty by observing the law, he says. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And all God's people said... There you have it. The law cannot justify a man. Only faith in Jesus Christ can do that. Now, let me preface what I'm about to say by saying this. I'm not foolish enough to believe that only Southern Baptists will be in heaven. I'm not. In fact, I'm I'm convinced that we will be very surprised by some of the people that we will meet in eternity. All right, so let me preface what I'm about to say with that right there. But let me tell you a story 
about a man that I knew once who was a faithful member of a Baptist church. And I mean faithful, faithful member of a Baptist church. For 50 years or more, he was a faithful member of this church. Every Sunday he was there, Sunday school, worship. He faithfully served. He, he gave faithfully and a lot of his money to this church. So for 50 years or more, he is a faithful, faithful member of this Southern Baptist church. But he had kind of a secret life. You know, you know what it was? Every Saturday, he was a faithful member of the local Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, help square those two things in my mind. Because I wrestled with that for a long time. Like, how is this even a thing? How can you be so faithful to this church and also be faithful to that church? Now, now understand what I'm saying. I don't mean to be rude. I really don't. All right? And so if you have loved ones who are Seventh-day Adventists, I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just trying to, to share. But in my view, the Seventh-day Adventists are not standing on the doctrine of justification by faith. I think that's a fair statement. And one of the reasons why that is is because they insist, as I understand it, they insist that in order to be considered a true child of God, a true Christian, one must observe the Sabbath as they interpret the Sabbath. And if you don't believe me, just go visit one of their churches. No, actually, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Read about it on Google or something. They're kind of like the Pharisees of old. They've, they've made the Sabbath. Listen, they've made the Sabbath about law-keeping rather than emphasizing the intent of the commandment, which is to take a day of rest. And by the way, we, we totally, this is one area where we all break God's law. Because if you read the fourth commandment very carefully, you will see that it says to work six days, American, and take one day off. It's exactly what it says, a day of rest. But of course, we're all guilty because we typically only work five days a week, and some of us less than that. But that's what the commandment says. It says work six days and then take a day of rest. That's what it's all about. And that's what God did. God created the world in six days, and then he, he took a day off. In my mind, church, this man was just kind of like Peter. One day he's living by justification by faith, but the next day he's really trying to be justified by law-keeping. Like, he's not totally convinced in his mind and in his heart that justification by faith is real. He's not really trusting in the security of his salvation based on grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. He's trying to add to that. He's trying to make sure that he can do anything he can to dot all of his I's and across all of his T's just in case this whole thing about faith in Jesus alone isn't entirely correct. Does that make sense to you? I think that's what he's doing. I've talks with him like, why are you doing this? Do you not trust in Jesus' death, his sacrifice on the cross on your behalf? Do you not trust in that alone? I don't think he's really sure of it. And so, beloved, the only way by which you can have full assurance of your justification is to trust fully in Jesus' atoning death on your behalf on the cross of Calvary and his resurrection. To do that is to remove all doubt. Now, we go on in verse 16. He's continuing to rebuke Peter. So we, that's Peter and Paul, also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, acquitted by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be 
justified. No one anywhere can be found justified by the law. You can only be found justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he says. It's as plain as day. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too, Paul and Peter, were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, Paul says, by no means. I mentioned this last week, and this will come up again in our study of Galatians. Some people don't like the content of Paul's gospel because they're saying, Paul, you're preaching a law-free gospel, and since you're preaching a law-free gospel, then you're, you're giving people a license to just go out and do whatever they want, and, and therefore a license to sin, and then so therefore Jesus really is giving everybody a free card to go out and sin. And Paul says, absolutely not. And he'll talk more about that later in this letter. Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Well, what did Paul tear down? He tore down the law. He was zealous for the law. He was a Pharisee. That's who he was. He was very zealous for all things law. It is so zealous, in fact, that, that he would kill his fellow Jews who had turned to Christ because they were turning to Christ and no longer, no longer following the law. And he thought that his zeal for the law, and in those cases and in other cases, was allowing him to live for the glory of God. You see that there? But no, he wasn't living for the glory of God. He was living for his own glory. Verse 19, for through the law I died to law so that I, I might live to God. Paul says to Peter, I've died to the law so that I might really live to God. And then we get to verse 20. And this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Paul says again to Peter, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if you like to take notes or if you like to, to write in your Bible, I want you to take note of the address of this verse. It's Galatians 2.20. Now, what comes to your mind when you think of or hear 2.20? Think about it for a second. What comes to your mind? I'll tell you what comes to my mind. Whenever, whenever I hear 220, I think of that electrical outlet in the house that the dryer plugs into. That's a 220 outlet, right, Rick? Yes, it is. And that thing is packed with power, voltage, electricity, and it will ruin your day. It will. I, I'll never forget. Uh, when I was a carpenter one time, I was just, you know, minding my own business and doing my thing. And then and the, for whatever reason, the electricians were in the house that day. And this guy's over here. He's working in the panel box. I do believe it is. And I'm just over here minding my business. When all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, and I have great peripheral vision, I see this big blue flash and, and this commotion and this yelping and this screaming. Because this guy, I don't know what he did, but he tapped into some voltage. And, and it, it hurt him. And it scared the living daylights out of me. And so from that point forward, whenever we need to plug in the dryer, I'll get Alina to do it. That's <laughs> a true story. <laughs> I don't like that outlet at all. So much power, voltage going through it. Galatians 2.20, church. It is a verse that contains a whole lot of power. 
a whole lot of voltage right here. Because here Paul explains how one can truly, truly live for God. Look at what he says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. As I said a couple of weeks ago, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and to die. And I believe that's true. You cannot live for God if you are, first of all, living for yourself. And so when you trust in Jesus' death on the cross, you must die too. A part of you must die. You must nail yourself to the cross. Every single day, Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. You've got to die to yourself every single day. Then he goes on to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When I die to myself through faith in Christ's death, then the resurrected Christ comes and indwells me. And so the same power that resurrected him from the dead comes and indwells me. Now there's power, much more power than a 220 outlet in the house. There's high voltage power right there. Then he goes on, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me read that again. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Somebody say amen. The word flesh is a reminder that we still live in these bodies. This body of flesh. Still prone to sin. Right? We're still going to break God's law. Even with Christ indwelling in us. No one gets it right all of the time. I'll be honest with you. I murdered someone last night. It's a true story. I'm not proud of it. I'm really not, because I knew I was preaching on this. I did. And somebody told me something that somebody had said about me, and it wasn't true, and this person knows it's not true, and when it was communicated to me, the very first thing I thought was, man, if I could just get my hands around this person's neck. And I thought, it, Walter, <laughs> How in the world could you be so angry? It's because I'm still living in this body of flesh. Still living in this body of flesh. So no one is perfect. No one gets it right all the time. But if we walk every day in light of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, every single day, then we are more prone to cast off sin and to grow in Christ-likeness and therefore live, truly live, to the glory of God. It's very simple. Do you want to live for the glory of God? Of course you do. I know you do. If you've truly trusted in Jesus Christ for your justification, I know you have that desire, okay? And again, no one's going to do it perfectly, so, so please don't hear me. You know, if, if you're wrestling with a sin or something in your life, hey, you know what? Don't let that condemn you. Don't let that make you walk out of here and go, well, I'm just a, a no good, dirty sinner. And, and no, Christ died for you. He gave Himself for you because He loves you. And even when you mess up and you murder someone at 10 o'clock on Saturday night before you're about to preach, He still loves you. I'm convinced of that. It's not a license to sin. If you're aware of your sin, that's a good thing. That means the Holy Spirit is working in you. That means the Holy Spirit is convicting you of this sin. This means that the Holy Spirit is telling you to look 
at the cross of Jesus Christ and nothing else. So do you want to live for the glory of God? Yes, yes you do. How do you do it? It's so simple. Fix your eyes on the cross every single day. Do not let a day go by, beloved, by which you do not stop and think and contemplate and dwell on Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for you on the cross. You need to preach the gospel to yourself every single day. And when you do that, the gospel will go from here down into here, and it will begin to transform you day by day into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So fix your eyes on the cross, and then I'm almost done, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, Peter says to Paul, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see the word righteousness there? It's the same root word as the word that's translated as justified elsewhere. It's the noun form of the word. And so it means the same thing, justification or acquittal. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If we seek acquittal before God by some other neat means than Jesus' atoning death on the cross in our place, then we nullify the grace of God. And we nullify the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. And so the question is simply this. By what means are you seeking your justification before God? That's the question. Is it by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, or is it by some other means? Church, I would encourage you to make sure that it is by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And all God's people said, Father, thank you so much for your great grace and love and mercy. Thank you that you would die in my place, sacrifice for my sin, that even though I am guilty and I richly deserve eternal separation from you, that that moment, however many years ago it was, that I confessed my sin and my guilt before you. And then I turned to faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for that moment that you took your gavel and you tapped it and you said, not guilty. You're acquitted of the charges brought against you. Father, I pray that I would live by that one simple truth, Every day, the rest of my life, first as a father and a husband, a pastor, a member of this community, that I would every single day look to the cross and remind myself just how much you love me and you gave yourself for me. And I pray that for everyone who's heard the message this morning, same thing, that they would take that truth to heart. We hear the gospel so often Sometimes maybe we lose sight of its significance. Lord, I pray that every single one of us would preach the gospel to ourselves every day and that we would change by it, by it so that we would live for your glory and your glory alone. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
invite you to stand, church. We're going to sing an invitation, an invitational hymn, which means this is a time for you to respond to God's Word. And so maybe there's someone who, who's never trusted in, in Jesus Christ and admitted your guilt before God and, and trusted that Jesus died for you for the forgiveness of sin and the promise of everlasting life. What are you waiting for? You're guilty. All of us are. Take this opportunity to confess and trust in Jesus Christ. And maybe there are others here who have been Christians for a long, long time. And maybe some days we're living by justification by faith. Some days maybe we're trying to make sure that we can do everything we can to secure our justification. No, there's not. You want to be assured? It's through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So whatever's on your heart, I would encourage you to come.